Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and also an occasional host. Before I jump into a brief rundown of the segments in this episode, though, I wanted to ask a quick favor of you. If you like this podcast, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. When we get more ratings and reviews, it brings more attention to the podcast and it really helps us gain more listeners. Now for a summary of the show. First off, Brad Berzer, a professor at Hillsdale College, joins me to talk about the movie Tolkien, which came out earlier this month, explaining what the film got right about the life of J.R.R. Tolkien and where it deviated from the true story. Afterwards, Bruce Ashford, a professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, joins the podcast to talk about his new book, The Gospel of Our King, and how the biblical narrative relates to our understanding of vocation, culture, and even the role of government. To learn more about the topics in this episode, check out our show notes, which I publish every Wednesday when our episodes release at blog.actin.org. Today, I'm speaking with Bradley J. Berzer, who is a writer, a professor of history at Hillsdale College, and the co-founder of the Imaginative Conservative. Brad, thank you for joining me on Acton Line. Carolyn, it's great. I always love working with Acton and with you in particular, so thank you very much. This is very nice. Oh, thanks. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, because today we're talking about the new film, Tolkien, uh, released earlier this month. And of course, it's about the writer J.R.R. Tolkien, who famously authored The Lord of the Rings. So before I dive into some more in-depth questions, I wanted to ask you, what did you think overall of the movie? How would What would you rate it? Wow, yeah. So I just saw it yesterday, and uh, I was not, I wouldn't have seen it had you and I not talked about it beforehand. I would have waited till it was on DVD, I think, or Blu-ray. And it was great seeing it in the, in the movie, having that movie experience. So I have to say uh, that I really liked it. I went into it having read a number of reviews that really trashed it and pit nitpicked it. And I thought, okay, those are probably accurate. So I went into the movie thinking, okay, I'm not really going to enjoy this. And I ended up falling in love with the movie. I, it, it hit me at a, a variety of different levels. So I would give it probably about an 8.5. If I had to do it, if, if I had to grade it, it would be a B plus. How's that? <laughs> so what reasons, What? why would you give it a B plus? Well, in terms of why did I like it or why would I knock it down? Let's let's talk about both. So let's dive into both. First, why did okay. you why did you like it and what subtracted from it? Yeah. So the thing I liked about it most, I it's rare for me. First of all, there was no I, I didn't find any politically correct stuff in the movie. And that, that meant a lot to me uh, because I'm so tired of people preaching to me about various things. I thought they handled issues very well. Um, so what I really liked about it was just the portrayal of friendship for both males and females. So or I should say male and female and male to male, because we didn't really see relations of women to women. In the movie, it was very much a male movie and from a very male perspective. But I thought, and of course, I've been reading about this stuff since yeah, I'm 51. I've been reading about this since about 1977, <laughs> since I turned about 10. Uh, Tolkien has been a really important part of my life. And I knew about his friendships in high school. And so when I saw it on the film, and they weren't just characters that I'd read in a book or in, in the evidence that we have, the few letters that we have, but to see them brought to life by actors and to uh, uh, 
have been done in such a passionate way and really a very expert way. I just, I thought that was incredible. And I also, my wife and I, uh, we have a mutual love of, of Wagner's The Ring, and we got to go see The Ring all 16 hours of it in Seattle back in 2005. And so to watch that scene and to see Tolkien and his wife fall in love, of course, before they're married, but when they were courting each other, to see that whole scene around Wagner's Ring, uh, I just thought it was gorgeous. I don't think any of that's historically accurate, uh, but I thought it was a gorgeous seen artistically. So there was a lot in it. I saw my friends in it, my male friends, but I saw a lot of my wife and myself as well. Not as heroic, (laughs) not me anyway, but I saw kind of elements of what I'd like to think of myself in the movie. And what elements of the movie, I guess, took it down a couple pegs for you? Right. So as someone who has spent most of my scholarly, my professional career studying Tolkien, it was very hard for me to see some of it, there were four or five things that were just factually wrong. And I was able to get past it because I thought the artistic experience was correct. So if someone said to me, you know, Brad, what do you think of Tolkien as portrayed in the movie? I would say they got him about 99% right in his spirit. Uh, and the only thing I thought was wrong was his reaction to Father, Father Francis when he said, you know, you're trying to make me lonely like yourself. I don't want to be lonely. That, that wouldn't have happened. And I can't even imagine Tolkien having said something like that. There are a whole variety of reasons that scene was just really wrong. But I was able to get past it because I thought other than that one scene, the spirit of Tolkien was there. And so was the spirit of Edith. Uh, Edith was a fierce character. She was not a timid. She was not. We wouldn't. If we look back to the 19 teens and we say, here's an orphan girl who's being brought up in a home that's not her own. I think we would automatically think kind of a diffidence. We would think shyness. And Edith was not that. She was very much her own person and extremely creative. And I thought they did a nice job of showing that without making her a modern feminist. So I I was pleased with that. So going into this film, I hadn't actually known too much about Tolkien's earlier life, his personal life, and more about where the ideas for his novels really came from. I had read The Lord of the Rings and I had been pretty much an avid fan of Peter Jackson's films for a very long time. Um, But one of the reasons I was excited to see this film is because I didn't know very much about his personal life. Many of our listeners probably don't know either. So can you give us an overview of what the defining moments in his early life looked like? Where did he come from? Um, Who was he kind of what turned him into the writer that he was? So he was, uh, it's a great question, uh, Carolyn, and it is, there, there's so much to him. One of the things that's interesting is that he's actually a very normal middle-class guy, uh, but obviously extremely talented. And I think he's one of those guys who understood if he was going to get anywhere, it was going to be by these talents, but they weren't talents to make money. They were talents to be artistic. So a lot of what they show in the movie where they have those conversations about, we're going to change the world through beauty, that, that was real. Uh, those Tolkien had those ideas from early on, and a lot of them came from his mother. So he's born into a very kind of middle to upper middle class English family. They had Germanic roots, but Anglo-Saxon Germanic roots. And when he was born into that family, the family had made money on pianos. So Tolkien pianos was a very, um, I'm not sure if it still is, but it was a huge 19th century and early 20th century brand. And that was his extended family had made money on those pianos. His father, though, was a banker. 
And when he was born, when Tolkien was born, the son, that, that is our Tolkien, when he was born, he was, uh, they moved, the family was in South Africa at the time because his father was working in the diamond industry there for banks. But Tolkien's health was not good. That is our Tolkien. And so the mother decided to remove him and his little brother and take them back to England without the father. And the marriage was great. It was just they were worried about the health and they needed the money. But by the time that Tolkien and his little brother and his mother got back to England, there was a telegram waiting for them that the father had unexpectedly died. And that, that's a huge factor for Tolkien. He really never knew his father. Uh, he was very young when his father died. I think he was two and a half or three when his father died. So he has almost no memory of the father. The mother was brilliant uh, in every way. She was fluent classically. She, uh, she would have had the equivalent of a very high degree in the 19th century, especially for a woman, which would have been unusual. But she was very self-educated, knew who she was, and was passing on that love of languages to her son. Uh, this is where the movie gets a couple of things wrong. So the family had been Protestant, but really nominally Protestant. It was just a cultural kind of national ethnic thing, rather than it was anything that they took seriously. And Mabel, the mother, had really fallen in love with John Henry Newman's teachings. And she had been walking back and forth um, next to this church, the Oratory, in Birmingham. And she had finally gone into Mass. And when she went in there, she was treated as an equal. So she walks in as a woman into Mass, and the priests start talking to her. There's no hesitation. They treat her very, very well. And she, again, I don't want to put any modern feminism on this, but she's, she's a spirited person, and this means a lot to her. So she converts to Catholicism. I mean, I think she believed in the theology, too, don't get me wrong, but there was a lot of that personal element in the way that she was treated there that, for her, indicated what this faith was really about. So she has the two boys, of course, come into the Catholic Church as well. But the moment she does that, the family writes her out completely of the family itself and will not give her any money. And she catches a form of tuberculosis, and it could have easily been treated if the family had paid for the medicine, but they refused to until she renounced her Catholicism, and she refused to do that. So when the movie starts, we see her and we see her with Father Francis, but we don't get any of that background. And I think it's really important that Tolkien always, for the rest of his life, one of the reasons he loves Edith so much is because he loved his mother so much. Tolkien really had a very Catholic Marian vision of women. Women were intensely sacred to him, not as objects, but as as people, as independent, you know, in, in a way that I think was very advanced for his age, uh, he truly saw women as equals. And almost, they were almost mystical to him because they did have the spiritedness to them, at least the ones he knew. So those figures that we find in the Lord of the Rings, like Arwen or Galadriel or Eowyn, they all very much reflect kind of his idealization of his mother, but also of his wife. So he also had a great reputation at Oxford with women students, uh, incredible reputation. So that was all part of his life. And I, I think if we had to define it, and I'm, I'm probably talking too long here, oh, Carol, no, you're but, fine. Go but ahead. I think if we had to define it, I think the two things that really drove him, uh, aside from this creative element, that's always there. The guy is obviously just brimming with creative intelligence. But I think, one, it was this love of his mother and of his wife 
and his desire to live up. He thought his mother was a martyr, and he always felt that he had to live up to that. His Catholicism was everything to him. But the second thing that I think is really important was not just his mother, but that second half, that is the Catholic element, that drove it as well. So you pull those things together, his love of his mother and his wife, plus his Catholicism, and you add that into this brotherhood that he had, this kind of pre-Raphaelite brotherhood with the TCBS, yeah, that, that's really what shaped him and what drove him the rest of his life. He had to live up to all of that, and you know, it, was, uh, it was bittersweet that those were the things. He had these incredible gifts, but you know, I, I think, and if I can speak here just personally for a moment, you know, I think God demanded a lot of him, and I think he gave everything he could. So all those themes are very evident, both in the movie and then obviously in his books. And one theme that I really also want to touch on is that theme of totalitarianism and the corrupting influence of power, huge in the books and obviously in the movies, arguably the biggest, maybe in The Lord of the Rings, besides this fellowship, brotherhood that you're talking about. Where did these themes take root in his imagination? So his family, again, an excellent question. His family had always been conservative. They'd always been Tories. So that was part of the upper upper middle class and and especially being intellectuals. Uh, They had always considered themselves that. And Edith, even uh, his wife, even as a little, as a young girl, when she was an orphan, she still went out and volunteered for the conservative party. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a huge part of her life. And of course, Tolkien's friends, they all, you know, it's very interesting because that King Edward school and the experience they do, they show so well in the movie, that was very formative to him. And the idea that, you know, where is he getting help? He's not getting help from the government. He's getting help from his friends and his, his, uh, the, the parents of his friends. And here's this priest who is doing all of these things for him, his mother who's given so much. And I think Tolkien, from a very early age, really believed in duty to England. There's no question about that. There's so much Englishness in what he's trying to promote. But it's the England of the middle class. It's not the England of the Labour Party or the England of the wealthy. It's the England of people who really, really work. And that, you know, that even in, in a children's story like The Hobbit, that's so clear. Right? The, the good people are those who work hard. Uh, Smaug as the, the dragon is obviously evil. He's a, he's a demon. But one of the reasons he's evil is because he's living off other people. And you know, we don't have to get into socialist arguments here. And I'm sure Father Sirico would appreciate this. But I mean, there's just a lot to what Tolkien believed in his own politics that was very Burkean, very conservative. It, he even described himself as an anarchist, uh, as he said, a, a constitutional anarchist, but still an anarchist, and uh, really did not believe in governments doing much. And you see that a lot, not only in The Lord of the Rings, but in The Hobbit. Power is always this corrupting thing. And of course, you know, who better? I, Tolkien is, is challenging. He's taking on the whole platonic myth of the Ring of Gyges. And you know, if anybody hands you that kind of power, what, what do you do? Like a priest, you carry it to hell itself and you throw it in. Now, that, that's his solution to the whole Ring of Gyges problem. No good man can wield that. And that comes out as well throughout uh, all of his stories throughout his life, too. And I, I think it is important to remember he's a minority within England. Being a Roman Catholic, uh, there are a lot of discriminatory laws still against him. But there are even more social practices that really, really go against Catholicism in England. You know, he 
he's seen as a he's a papist. He's a traitor. So there's a lot of that that he has to overcome. So going back to the movie that's recently just come out, I want to go over some criticisms that the movie received. Because before we started recording here, you and I were talking about how a lot of reviews that came out around the release were really quite scathing, I would say. Um, Michael Ward, who is the co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis, he recently wrote in review of the film that, quote, this handsome, earnest, yet overstuffed in poorly paced film deviates frequently from historical record. Most seriously, it ignores Tolkien's devout Christian faith, and there is no indication that he served mass daily as a boy or even entered a Catholic church. Um, The director, I believe you pronounce his name Dome Karukowski, he's he's Finnish. He was asked why the film didn't contain more themes about Tolkien's faith, and basically the director said, well, we tried and it just didn't fit because uh, this film is mainly about his early life and uh, it just didn't work, <laughs> which it seems okay. like a bit of a cop out to me. Yeah. You know, from my perspective, and, and again, I went in because of Michael's reviews and others reviews thinking, OK, they've, they've got to do something here to make this real. And I do think they kind of blew that. That's why I would give it a B plus and not an A. I think that there were things they could have done subtly, you know, even a 20 second, even a 10 second scene of him before the Blessed Sacrament or in battle carrying the rosary, which we know he did. Uh, that I think could have done a lot. Now, I, I will say so two things I would have done differently, but I'm not a movie maker either. And I, uh, I, but I think having at age 51 and looking back, what could have been done, you know, a, a brief scene here or there would have added a lot. Uh, we do get the sense that Edith is not so thrilled with it. And I, I'm not sure how you would show that Carolyn. Uh, I think by the very fact she wasn't thrilled with it and father Francis wasn't thrilled with her indicates that the Catholicism mattered, but they do it in a way that kind of makes father Francis just look prickly. Uh, So that, that wasn't that effective. The other thing, so I'll I'll throw two ideas out here, one good, one bad. Father Francis was a a serious intellectual. He was a student of Cardinal Newman. And in the movie, he's played by Cole Meany, who's probably most famous for Star Trek. But I I never got the sense he was even acting. Uh, In the movie itself, I thought he was the weakest part of the whole movie. And, you know, he, when he was supposed to be mad, he wasn't mad. And when he was friendly, he wasn't that friendly. He just was kind of a soft pudding character. There wasn't a lot to him at all. And I don't know if that was because Meanie's not a great actor or because that's the way the director told him to portray it. But that was disappointing, uh, I thought, especially because he was such an intellectual and he was a father. He was the only father Tolkien ever knew. Um, so, and he was a serious father. Not wasn't just some fly-by-night guy. I mean, they talked all the time, and Tolkien often spent the night not not just at uh, Mrs. Faulkner's house, but at the oratory. Right? And they kind of made it look like Father Francis was a, a parish priest. He's not. He's a member of the Birmingham Oratory. There are many, I, I don't know if there are hundreds, but there are tens, uh, maybe close to 100 priests living in that. And they never really show that. And, of course, Hillary and, and Ronald used to run around, and the priests were very good to them, uh, excellent to them. They loved having these little boys around. They were at 
speak, oratory more than they were ever at this, this border's house. So that was, I think, incorrect. And I'm sorry they showed it the way they did. However, and this is what I thought was great, Carolyn, and, and please feel free to disagree with me. But the scene, and even talking about it now, I get emotional. Um, the scene where Tolkien is desperately searching for Jeffrey on the battlefield. And as he walks onto the field, and there is that gorgeous Baroque crucifix in the battlefield. And not just the crucifix, but you get the shadow monster behind. So here's the crucifix that he's approaching. And behind the crucifix is this monstrous evil. You know, I assume it's meant to be Melkor, the devil. Uh, I saw reviews calling it a Balrog. I don't think it was a Balrog. I think it was Satan. But just having that on the film. And I mean, even I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> I've got I've got water in my eyes. It just that hit me so hard that Tolkien is he's got Christ with him as he went into the battlefield and you know, they didn't show some mamby pamby uh, cross it was the crucifix and it was bloody and I thought amen <laughs> that made up for all of the sins of the movie that one moment I thought okay they get it and I also okay <laughs> you oh can yeah please go on <laughs> but the whole artistic his love of art was so Christian yeah, you know, this was they're trying to they're trying to make the world whole again through beauty. You know, that if that's not Jesus on the cross, if that's not John standing with Jesus at the cross, that's cavalry right right there. I mean that that is uh, to me that's the essence of of the the death and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Christ. I, I thought they nailed that. And the whole concept of words being important, you know, that that's such a metaphor for Christ and the Logos. So I thought there were things, you know, if you wanted to be hit over the head, I, I can see that, yes, it didn't look that Catholic, but I thought the themes of the movie were deeply Catholic, and I, I appreciated them. Now, maybe I was trying to read too much into it, but it hit me hard. People coming away from this movie who are just having their appetites, you know, whetted by the themes in this movie. They're wondering who Tolkien is. They want to learn more. What biographies or resources can you suggest that um, yeah. you believe are most accurate in representing Tolkien as a person and writer, what would you suggest? Oh, two things right away. Uh, so if you really want to understand Tolkien, aside from his fiction, the two best things have been done by Humphrey Carpenter. That, that's what I would really encourage somebody to go to the 1977 biography that Carpenter wrote, just called Tolkien, a biography. That's still, nobody has done better than that. There are books that I think have taken elements of Tolkien elsewhere. Yeah, um, I think in particular, Joe Pierce's book on man and myth is excellent at looking at the Catholic element of Tolkien. Jane Chance, who I think is a beautiful scholar, does a great job at looking at Tolkien's medievalism. Uh, I think John Garth, the book, the movie that we just saw was based on his book of Tolkien's experiences of World War One are great. But if you just want to start and really get to know Tolkien, the person, I would start with Humphrey Carpenter's 1977, Tolkien, a biography. And then after that, I would go to Carpenter's edited work, his, the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. I, that, that book for me, I read that when it first came out. So it had been about 1981 and I was in junior high at the time, but that's actually served as a kind of a devotional for me, Carolyn. It, it, I won't put it up there with scripture, but I generally, when I really need inspiration, if I'm not reading 
St. John in the New Testament, always my favorite writer. But if I'm not reading John, I look at T.S. Eliot's collected poetry, and if I'm not reading that, I'm reading Tolkien's letters. Uh, he is Tolkien is as intelligent as you can possibly imagine, and he's as humble as you can possibly imagine. And so you put those two things together, this brilliant intelligence with this deep humility, uh, it, it's a it's a very fetching combination, definitely. So those would be the two places I'd start. And then after that, you can really go in a variety of different directions, and a lot of good things have been written. But it depends on what element of Tolkien that you want. Unfortunately, we're running low on time, but Brad, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, it's always great, Carolyn. I love working with you. Thank you. Every year in June, Acton University brings together nearly 1,000 people in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to explore the foundations of a free society. And this year, we're excited to be opening registration for each evening's dinner and plenary session for those who can't attend the full conference. Join us on the evening of June 18 to hear Mary Ann Kalam, a politician in Estonia, speak firsthand about her witness of Soviet-occupied Estonia and her work to champion freedom after the fall of the Iron Curtain. Save your spot at this event before seats fill up and register at acton.org slash events. Thank you for uh, tuning in to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute, headquartered here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This is Trey Dimsdale, the Director of Program Outreach at Acton, and I'm joined today by Bruce Riley Ashford, the author of The Gospel of Our King, a new book that's uh, come out from Baker Academic. Bruce, thanks for joining us on our podcast today. Trey, it's uh, great to be on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So um, let's dive right in here to this book, the, the book, The Gospel of Our King, the subtitle Bible, World view and the mission of every Christian. Can you uh, describe to us the, uh, you know, how this book was born, the idea for it, and uh, the thesis that you're trying to advance here? Yeah, thank you for asking. So the, the point of the book, and what we're, we're arguing here, is that the Bible, which is composed of 66 different books, numerous authors, and multiple genres, is actually coherent. It's got two types of coherence. It's got a systematic coherence and a narrative coherence. And in our book, we focus on the narrative coherence. In the first half of the book, we um, teach the Bible as a story that can be told in five or six acts, and we show how that story fits together and uh, functions as the true story of the whole world. Then in the second half of the book, we try to show how our lives as Christians fit into that narrative. So if the Bible is a dramatic narrative, uh, a drama that's unfolding, we as Christians are, uh, serve as actors in that drama. And so we try to show in the second half of the book how the totality of the human life can and should be shaped by the Bible's story, which is the true story of the whole world. So you uh, adopt uh, the dominant uh, you know, theme of monotheism uh, in the uh, second half of the book when you're discussing uh, mission. Um, that's probably something that uh, most Christians sort of take for granted. Uh, this is, you know, a, a part of small o, o, o orthodox belief. Every single Christian tradition uh, that is um, true to the creeds uh, adopts monotheism. Uh, why is it that, that that's, the, that's the, the motif, I guess, that you've used as a vehicle for discussing Christian mission? Yeah, good question. You know, so there's an irony. Lots of ironies in the fire here in the West, but uh, one of them is that we're in the we we live in a secular age. I want to explain what I mean by that. Drawing upon uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, 
What I mean when I say that we live in a secular age is not that we live in an age where most people profess atheism or agnosticism, um, not that we live in an age where people are afraid to bring their religion into the public square. Uh, what I mean is just that Christianity has been displaced from the default position in our culture and is now positively contested by numerous, countless ideologies, worldviews, takes, spins on life. Westerners are, as Taylor puts it, fragilized in our belief system. We're, we're unsure what to believe. So we live in a secular age, and in a secular age, you want to be able to reintroduce the one true and living God. And we try to show people how we can reintroduce God into the public imagination. Then on the other hand, we also use uh, speak of monotheism because uh, the Bible often talks about idolatry, that um, as human beings, all of us are idolaters. We take some aspect of God's good creation and we absolutize it, ascribe ultimacy to it. And when we do that, that aspect of his creation, whether it's sex or money or power or material equality or whatever it is we choose, uh, becomes a cudgel that beats down and beats back other good aspects of God's creation. And so when we introduce the one true and living God, he pushes back on our secular age on the one hand and also on the pr- proliferation of idols on the other hand. Bruce, this is a um, a, th- a theme, like I mentioned, that's um, consistent, whether you're talking about uh, Catholic Christians, Protestant Christians, Orthodox Christians. You are uh, serves provost at a Southern Baptist Seminary in North Carolina, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. So you, you obviously are coming from a particular denominational and confessional tradition. But I'm, I'm wondering if you can uh, maybe describe how this could be something that is uh, a useful resource for Christians from, from any, any tradition, not just those that are, that are a part of your own. Yeah, absolutely. So I think anyone who can ascribe to Nicene Orthodoxy, any Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, uh, anyone uh, except for really a theological liberal is going to immediately be able to pick this book up, appreciate, I think, most of it, and incorporate it. We teach the Bible as the true story of the whole world, and we delve into the storyline and explain it. In the second half of the book, we argue that the Christian mission is theological, social, cultural, and global in nature. So it's theological in that we're introducing the one true and living God. It's social in that it inherently connects us with other people, uh, connects us with God's people, but also with people who are not believers. It's cultural in that the gospel is a public truth um, that is publicly available and it makes claims on public matters. And the gospel actually speaks into um, arts and the sciences, scholarship and education, politics and economics, sports and competition, business and entrepreneurship, marriage and family, all of these cultural realities. And we try to show people how uh, to take the Christian worldview and leverage it to be an ambassador for the king in each of those spheres. And then finally, we argue that it's a global mission, that it culminates in Revelation chapter chapters 5 and 7 teach us that God will win for himself worshipers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And this teaches us that God is not a tribal deity. The one true and living God is uh, the cosmic king of the entire universe. And uh, so for the, that's the reason we call it the gospel of our king. I want to delve in a little bit, uh, a little bit more deeply on a couple of things that, a couple of phrases that you've used a couple of times. 
in the first chapter of your book and, and then through, through the introduction and then and you've adopted the same language here as you've talked about this, you use the phrase, the true story of the whole world as being kind of the gospel narrative, the biblical narrative. Can you explain what you mean by the true story of the whole world? Are you talking about... Uh, you know, the, the origins or you t- origins of culture, origins of the physical universe, or, or what, what exactly is it that you mean when you use that phrase? Yeah, so we live in a world of competing narratives, right? So media outlets have a narrative, and in their narrative, they identify an evil or a, a set of evils, and then they identify what it is that's going to rescue us. Usually it's something, a political savior of some sort will deliver us from that evil. Um, not just media outlets, political parties. Uh, it, it, people, we, we live in a world where we make narratives to explain the, the way the world is, what's gone wrong with the world, how to fix it. Ironically and unfortunately in the West, often we look at the Bible's narrative as a little bit player within a bigger and more important narrative, maybe the narrative of our, our favorite uh, media outlet. And what we want to argue is that the, the narrative of a media outlet or a political party or any other kind of narrative actually is subsumed under the Bible story of the world. It's the it's God's revelation of himself that explains to us where we come from and where we're going, what's gone wrong with the world and how to fix it, who we are as human beings, our meaning and our significance. It's God's self-revelation that, that positions and frames every other truth. The other term that you've used here uh, quite a few times is is gospel. It's even clearly, you know, right there in the the center of the title of this book. And different <clears throat> Christian traditions use this word to describe something that's at the heart of the of the entire Christian tradition, but they use it in slightly different ways. And in the evangelical world now, there's or or, or at least you know, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago it meant something pretty narrow. Gospel was kind of like the formula for getting into heaven. It was the the bridge that made you, uh, you know, that, that separated a non-believer from a believer, a follower, a non-follower of Jesus. But it started to be used uh, in terms of, uh, even as an adjective now, uh, and I'll, I'll be completely upfront, we may disagree on this, I, I don't actually like uh, the transition of the word into a, uh, into an adjective where we identify gospel issues as compared to non-gospel issues or you know, gospel-centric justice or something like that. Uh, can you explain what you mean by gospel and how this you think that this does resonate uh, with the subtitle of your book that, that lays out that what you're, the argument that you're making is actually for every Christian? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, there are only three places in the Bible where the word gospel is used and then followed by a description of the word. And the, the most substantive of those is First First Corinthians fifteen three through 5. And in that passage, Paul says um, that he wants to preach the gospel that has been delivered to him, and then he describes that gospel. And he says, um, I don't have my Bible open, but I think this would be pretty close to an accurate quote. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, was buried, rose from the dead, according to the scriptures, and then it goes on to describe that he appeared publicly to many people. So if we divided that into five aspects, the very first thing I would note is that this is Christ. And I think for many evangelicals, or just not just evangelicals, everyday Christians, the word Christ sort of functions like Jesus' last name for them, right? Because if Jesus showed up at the doctor's office and the 
lady at the counter said, we need to see your um, ID. Thank you, Mr. Christ. You can go you know, have a seat and wait for the doctor. But Christ is actually a title. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And nobody in the ancient Near East and nobody in Jesus' time, uh, when they heard the word Messiah and when Jesus claimed that he was the Messiah, nobody thought of him as merely the savior of an individual's soul. This is a massive title that, that Jesus was claiming to be the kingdom bringer, the one who would return one day to set the world to rights, the one who is uh, the Lord over the wind and the waters and life and death and so forth. And so this is a very public claim, and it's a claim that Jesus is ultimately sovereign over everything in the world. Then uh, the fact that he died for our sins, was buried, and rose from the dead is a precious truth. It has an individual application in that this is the promise that God will do what we cannot do for, for ourselves, which is save us from ourselves. That's a precious truth, personal and even private, but it's also a public truth because when Jesus rose from the dead and did so publicly, that was a down payment on several things. Number one, that he'll raise our soul to new life spiritually if we embrace him and trust in him. Number two, that he'll one day raise our bodies from the dead. Number three, that he'll return one day to set the world to rights. And then finally, he appeared to many witnesses. And this is uh, speaks to the public nature of the gospel, that it's a, a public truth, and it declares that Jesus lays claim on absolutely everything. And it's a good truth for us. It means that, the, that our Christianity can and should be brought to bear upon everything that we do in life. That uh, to use the, the word worldview, which gets used in all sorts of unfortunate ways, but I think it's still a good word, that the Christian worldview should underpin the totality of our life, not merely our church attendance or our personal you know, devotion to the Lord. So I noticed there that you've used the term set the world to rights. That's, I, I can see you've probably been reading some N.T. Wright. Uh, that's a term he uses. Um, but there's another another thinker that a lot of the contours, the concepts that you uh, that you draw upon in your work and uh, your broader works uh, in general um, that kind of shine through in this. And that's Abraham Kuyper. I'm, I'm wondering if uh, if I gave you you know a little bit of an opportunity to describe how Kuyper has has shaped your uh, your understanding of the gospel's operation in in our wider society, if if you could shed some light on that for us, yeah. So I enjoy talking about uh, Father Abraham. Um, yeah. So you know, that was a point in my life uh, when I was younger. What I really wanted to understand is how Christ's lordship, if he really is Lord over everything, then how does his lordship, you know, how does God's revelation of Himself through Christ and through the Scriptures, how does it affect? the whole of my, you know, my everyday life, because I could only see how it affected maybe some personal ethics and my devotional time and so forth. And Kuiper was really helpful. Uh, just to describe in, in brief what was most helpful, what we could call his philosophy of society or his theology of culture. In a nutshell, he argued that when God created the world, he did so by means of his word. He not only called forth something from nothing by means of his word, but he also shaped that something. He normed the world. He ordered it. So different traditions use different language to describe this. You can speak of it in terms of natural law. You can speak of it in terms of creation's design. But God normed the world, not just morally, Kuiper argued, but culturally. Catholics talk about this norming often in terms of Catholic social teaching. It's talked about in terms of subsidiarity, that God has created a world in which we'll have different types of associations and 
and institutions. In Kuyperian language, he talks about in terms of spheres. There are different spheres of culture. And each sphere, he says, like art or science or politics or education, each sphere has its own center and its own circumference. So by center, he means each sphere has its own unique reason for being. And then it has its own circumference. And by that, he means limits to its jurisdiction. So the state has a, or the government has a unique reason for being, but there's also limits to its jurisdiction. And we need to push back against statism when the state has this sort of inexorable drive to reach its fingers into every square inch of our life. But uh, not just the state, it pushes back against the church, um, expanding beyond its calling or any sphere uh, sort of spilling out and cascading over and outside of its jurisdiction and its competence. And I found it really helpful. And Kuiper encouraged Christians in each sphere to ask three questions, each one relating to one of the acts in the Bible's narrative, creation, fall, and redemption. In relation to creation, you want to ask, what is God's design for this particular sphere of culture? Um, what are some of the norms? What would natural law teach us? Second, how has this sphere of culture been corrupted and misdirected by sin and idolatry? And then third, how can we draw upon creation's order and upon God's uh, revelation in Scripture to redirect what's been misdirected, to untwist what's been twisted by sin? And I think when a Christian gets a hold of that fact that Christ's lordship is relevant to every aspect of our life, all of a sudden, the whole of our life becomes more meaningful. Turning a corner, just briefly as we wrap up, I'm, I'm wondering if you can... Um, you know, maybe take a few minutes to tie the the, the primary thesis of this to what you would hope a uh, a reader would take away and ultimately apply. Kind of the way their their thinking would be oriented that would lead them to apply what they've learned, they've thought through uh, in reading this book to you know issues related to individual liberty, economic and religious and political freedom. The 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 whole concept of uh, the diff- different spheres of culture each having their own center and their own circumference, I think it's, a, it's an easy way to describe to people, um, for example, why we want to have a small government. You know, you've got, I think you've got some, some really well-intentioned folks on the left, and I'm not on the left, I'm on the right, but you've got some really well-intentioned folks on the left who want to have an impulse to turn to the government every time there's a need. For government to provide economic solutions or other sorts of solutions to ameliorate the consequences of our bad choices or to, or maybe just negative consequences in general. Kuiper's talk about the spheres and his resistance to the government overstepping its bounds helps us to, to um, sort of have an easy way of articulating that to our neighbor. If we hand over the reins to the government on uh, economic matters, for example, we're also, whether or not we're aware of it, handing over the reins to everything else in our life. Because the more the government controls economically, the more it controls everything else in society. And so I think Kuiper just, you know, he was a scholar, but he was also a political leader who spoke at political rallies with, he was known as the, the blue collar guy, that he could uh, speak to the, the everyday American, or in his day, the everyday Dutchman. And in our book, what we try to do is uh, we make this as accessible as, as possible so that an everyday American can draw upon Kuiper's thought to have a conversation about a political or economic matter in a way that makes sense to a person across the political aisle. 
All right, uh, Bruce, the book is The Gospel of Our King, Bible, Worldview, and the Mission of Every Christian. Uh, Thanks, Bruce, for taking uh, some time to talk to us today. Uh, We're looking forward to uh, having you here also in July um, at the Acton Building to give uh, a lunch lecture. We'll find out a little bit more about what that uh, lecture will be uh, later on in the uh, in the spring and early summer. I'm sure it's going to have uh, touch on touch on Abraham Kuyper. I'm sure. Thank you. It's uh, great to be on the show, and I'm really grateful for what you folks are doing at Acton. Thank you for listening today. If you have any feedback about this podcast, I would love to hear it. Every week, our podcast team is working to bring you the best show, and we couldn't do it without you. Let me know what you think about this podcast and email me at actinline at actin.org. This episode of Actin Line is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.